Hello and welcome to another bout of unboxing. Today my sparring partner is Jason Fulton, who is the founder and CEO of a company called This Memento. This Memento are a consumer insights agency who work with the likes of Nike, Sonos, Reebok, Foot Locker and Rihanna. And what they do is they speak to consumers um, on an individual level and then translate what consumers are saying in real time to the brands um, in order to give them kind of real insights uh, and be able to direct them to make positive change with their, their brand direction and their company direction. Jason has a background working for FC UK, um, Diesel, um, and also Nike um, themselves. Um, it was actually in the 2008 recession where he um, decided to, to start this memento up and had the opportunity to start that um, up out of that. So um, he's, he's got a little bit of um, knowledge around you know, pandemics and um, crisis and how to react during that kind of change. But um, I'm really interested really in diving into Jason's journey and, and specifically how he can speak to people and, and what, he's, uh, what his insights have been in the last sort of two, three months or so around firstly like the COVID crisis, but also the racism crisis and how brands are going to have to adapt their messaging um, to, in these changing times. So without any further ado, um, please welcome to the ring, Jason Fulton. Okay, I'm, I'm bounding into the ring and jumping over the ropes or I don't go to the ropes, I go over the ropes. Yeah, as you speak. the step over, the step over, make a, <laughs> make a, um, a statement straight away. But thanks very much for, for joining me. It's, it's really cool to, to have someone um, like yourself in the ring and, and be able to pick your brains. Um, very yeah, it's good to see your face again. <laughs> yeah. So it's a funny story because uh, we met on a really a pretty chance um, encounter, really. I mean, it was so, as, as probably some people know, listening to this uh, interview, I started up a, a company called One Part with my brother, which is a, a, a golf event startup trying to, trying to reinvent the way that people see golf and play golf. And at the time, Jason was doing a little bit of work for Nike Golf. And Nike were have the, Nike's main challenge was actually trying to understand the new generation of golfers, particularly in London, better and what they wanted, what they were after, you know, what the trends were. And um, somehow we must have done something right on our Instagram. And I think um, one of your colleagues, uh, Marcia, um, and, and I think she actually knew one of my friends from university, they'd met traveling or something. Um, got in touch out the blue and said, um, um, we, before we knew it, we had someone from Nike Golf wanting to interview us. So we thought we'd hit the absolute jackpot. Um, and yeah, we, we ended up, um, we, we went to, I think it was, was your flat or, or someone's flat actually, and had like this really authentic um, interview from Jason. Um, and I, it really actually struck me during that interview, like, how interested Jason was in our story and that made us feel like cool like you know we're, we're there involved in some work for Nike Golf and there was someone who's really interested in two guys you know who've achieved nothing on the <laughs> in the comparison scale to you know a Nike but yet he's really interested in our story and, and knows that we have knowledge that they don't have 
And I thought that was, um, it was a really good experience. And, and, and I think that th this to me is one of the key reasons for starting the agency. Yeah. You know, it's, it's now been 11 years um, since we've had it. We have a really, you know, quite a small and nimble team. You know, we do boutique work for some of the brands that you already mentioned. And then we work with other freelancers across Europe. And, and we've also done projects across the globe. Uh, as you said, we did that work with uh, Rihanna. So we connected with some people in, in, um, in New York. We did a project for Nike Football. So we're in Mexico City. So that was just one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had. But I think what's key for what I do with the agency um, the people that I have working with me, and also what I did at Nike, I, I used to have uh, a team. We, we called it the Consumer Culture and Innovation Team across Europe. Uh, we connected to the global team in Nike in Beaverton, in Portland. But the one thing that we always had in common is the curiosity. But it's the genuine, authentic curiosity to understand what what is the the motivation behind people's behavior and this is what i think is so interesting is that everybody has this quality it's it's a timeless quality that human beings have but some people either choose to use it and leverage it and some people just leave, leave it latent and and so i think that what we've been fortunate enough to to be able to do is that I've had it in my in my nature from a from a kid, you know, when I was 16 years old, couldn't get a girl, you know, at um, at sixth form college, you know, what did I do? I started to ask questions. I figured out my tactic was appear to be interesting. Yeah. Uh, and so what I developed was the the art of asking questions. Yeah. So when I when I came across a girl that I would like. I would ask questions you know it started off with the basics what's your star sign where yeah. do you live in London what do you do but also the conversations that it actually generated was genuinely really interesting to me yeah because I was I, I then started to, to figure out that people really like to express themselves yeah. yeah and if people express themselves and there's somebody who's genuinely interested then they go beyond their normal conversation that they have from day to day. Mm -hmm. And the, the more questions that you ask, the, the more intelligent questions that you ask, the deeper the questions that you ask, the deeper the information that you get. Yeah. And that's when you get more from just observing that you really get into the insights. So I think that what I've had, what I think my team has here, uh, we're based in Amsterdam, um, the people that we that we work with, the clients that we ask to come along on on our research journey, is have an open mind, open hearts, uh, and open ears. Because if we can all tap into that sometimes latent quality of curiosity, then we will find the things that we never expected to see or to hear. So th this is, uh, you know, I, I think it's been a, a constant since I was 16 trying to pick up girls. Yeah. And how, how did it go with the girls? Did you start to get... Not some very good. Success? Did you start to get some success when you started asking them? I didn't really kick off when I was about 18. Yeah. 
<laughs> I was going to say, this could just turn into a little bit of dating advice uh, podcast, maybe. <laughs> uh, that's really cool and well, well said. But um, I was interested that you said how everyone can do it and it, it's not a unique talent that only some people have. Why do you think it is that people aren't, you know, don't use that um, that power of asking those questions and being interested? Do you think it's just a muscle that you can develop over time, and that, and that some people just don't get the chance to develop that muscle? Like, what, what, why do you do you think it's a tool that more people can use but don't? I I think that um, we all have the tools from childhood what is where the tools sometimes get stunted is from it can be parents it could be guardians it could be teachers who say things like stop asking those questions or stop staring you're you're you know you're um you're making somebody feel uncomfortable and so these are these are our natural curiosity that's a, our natural evolution to mm -hmm. understand the world around us so what happens there is that it already starts to potentially get stunted from, a, from an early age. Yeah. Some people are stubborn enough to be able to say, okay, no, I'm, I'm, I'm still going to ask questions, which can annoy other people. But I think it starts there. Yeah. The other thing that I think may kick in is fear. Um, fear of asking stupid questions. Yeah. Um, Fear of being uncomfortable in in a conversation. So that's another reason why people stop asking questions or maybe stop going deeper. Um, and then I think you know the older you get, and and if you've felt stunted or you have that fear, then and depending on what career path you go into, then maybe it's not needed or you, you may consider it's not needed. So you maybe leverage it or you use it in a social situation yeah. with friends, drinks with colleagues. So you may use it there, but you, you may not tend to use it in a, in a work or career situation. Yeah. So I think that there are, you know, there are some, um, there are some reasons why people just may not think it's necessary. But I think that especially for not only the work that we do, but I also think where the world is going now, I mean, I think you mentioned in your intro about the pandemic, you could argue, and I would strongly argue, that we have two pandemics that we're dealing with right now, being, of course, the coronavirus and the systemic racism. So we're dealing with two pandemics. And the, you know, the, the, the climate crisis or the emergency, which because of these two pandemics has all of a sudden been left a little bit on the back burner in terms of conversation. So we're dealing with some very critical conversations right now. And things like fear of speaking up, guilt about racism, for, for example. Yeah. Um, could be white guilt. It's not helpful. Fear, guilt, uh, and not wanting to have the difficult conversations 
at this moment in time is not a helpful characteristic or a platform to have. Now is the time where we need to have those conversations. We need to have a look at how do we continue to create the change which has been, in a way, forced upon us by these two pandemics, and now we have a great opportunity. But if we miss the opportunity or we miss the chance to take it, then where will we end up? So I think that curiosity plays a role in that. How did Corona start? Where is it coming from? Where is it going? Systemic racism. Holy crap, I thought um, that we were doing okay. I know it's slow, but I've seen how people have really been affected. What's the history? Where is this all coming from? Curiosity, education, climate crisis. <laughs> you know, coronavirus has, uh, has had a massive impact on CO2 emissions and everybody's now been able to see it. But are we going to go backwards or are we going to go forward? And if we're going to go forward, let's praise be we do, is how will we, will we go forward? How can we work with companies and institutions and brands that can say the way behind us was not sustainable, yeah. not in terms of a, an ecology or, or organic way, but the way that we were living in the past has, has brought us this situation, the way forward has got to change. Yeah. How, do we, how do we create that change? Yeah. Because now I think we know why we need to create that change. And this is a critical difference for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you said it right. It seems as though the, the best word to summarise this period of time is that op- this opportunity, isn't it? There's a, there's a great opportunity to change habits on an individual level that, as, as you do, then translate to a, a brand, institution, company level, which can create more sort of widespread change. Um, but yeah, so many, so many interesting uh, topics that you brought up there that we could, you know, dive off in tangents from. But just to, of course, keep the keep the conversation going in in the right direction. I wanted to pick up on what you said about how you know school sometimes can be a factor in, in um, preventing that curiosity. And um, I was interested in you know your experiences in school. I believe you grew up in London. Um, is that is that right? And yes, Southeast London, Lucian. Got it. Um, as as a minority, and, and obviously you're someone who enjoys asking those questions um, and those, you know, you're not happy with just this is the way it is. I think a lot of people agree that school is a place where you you're told what's right. You're told this is the way the world works, and you've got to you know understand that and don't ask too many questions. So. I was interested in a your your experiences at school asking those questions and did you get come up against um, resistance and also how that potentially relates to um, the the racism crisis and how you know we look at um, a lot's been said about how education is is a big part of the issue and you know not being taught the right histories or not at least not being taught a balanced history. Um, but also some of those like kind of insidious, um, insidious attitudes at school, potentially sort of not allowing people to express themselves enough. Um, so yeah, interested in to, to hear your thoughts, your experiences through school, um, and you know 
maybe some of your thoughts around how schools can play a part in that change? I mean, I, I, as as I mentioned, I, I I grew up in southeast London, Lewisham. Um, I, I lived on an estate. So <clears throat> just to be clear to people who may not understand what a, an, an estate is, it's not a it's a housing estate. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not a it's not a palatial estate. I grew up on a housing estate. Yeah. The school that I the, the primary school that I went to, I was my brother and I, I have an older brother, were quite often the you know the the the, the first or only uh, you know black kids in the class. Yeah. Um, then when I went to secondary school, I went to Forest Hill Boys. Um, there was there was more racial diversity in the school. So in primary school, I don't think it really had um, an impact. The, the, the awareness of it wasn't so huge. I think the transition moment going from primary school to secondary school, that's when I had, there was more of an impact for me. Yeah. A couple of things happened. Um, one of the things that happened was that I was playing football with, with my brother, with some other mates, uh, and where we were playing, somebody or uh, two young men <clears throat> walked past and they, you know, uttered a racial slur. And I went home to my mom and I, I repeated it and I said, Mom, what, is, what does that mean? And then as my mom, who she's from, from Guyana uh, in South America, just above Brazil. Yeah. Um, and then she she explained where it was coming from. This was my first exposure to I'm different. Yeah. I knew I was different. I looked different. But from I looked different to I am seen differently. It's, and this is already a different perspective. Yeah. When I went into secondary school, I, I followed my brother. He's one year older than me. And he already had some quite negative experiences from the teachers. And his experiences and my experiences were that the expectations of us, black boys in particular, were not very high. <clears throat> Stick to sports. I mean, I heard this from teachers. Stick to sports. Yeah. Um, because that or stick to something to do with entertainment or music or dancing because that's something that you'll be good at. So we heard that from teachers. What really depresses me, to be frank, is that I don't think that some of these expectations of people of color, um, especially black boys and black girls, have changed that radically over, and I'll be honest with you, I'm giving my, my age away here, over about 40 years. I listened to a podcast on, on The Guardian a couple of weeks ago, and it was, it was still talking about racism in UK schools, and it was giving examples of what the kids were experiencing from the teachers, and I had flashback moments. Yeah. I heard something similar. Yeah. You need to do something with your hair. I heard something similar 30 years ago. Yeah. But here is where I think it's super important. I mean, you talked earlier about um, innovation. And I'm fortunate enough to have lived in London, moved from London 
to live in Amsterdam. And because of the career that I've chosen, working with Nike, working with Diesel, and having my own agency, I've been able to travel the world and see how other countries, other cities, other countries deal with education and deal with people of color in education. Now, I'm not saying that the other countries do it better, but they certainly do it differently. One thing that I have noticed is that over the years, since I was in, still in education, is that primary schools from year six to year, to year 10 to 11 are much more innovative in how they teach, nurture, grow children. It's more creative in terms of exercises, whether it's physical exercises, whether it's mental exercises. They experiment with, um, with different tools. Um, they experiment, I've seen it in Germany, the Netherlands, I've heard about it in Australia, mindfulness being part of exercises within the classrooms of primary schools. They try new things, they experiment at, at primary schools. And this is a really refreshing, clear path forward into what education could be. But still the transition into secondary school where the pressures of the schools being successful, mm -hmm. the parents putting pressure on the kids to be successful, um, those pressures start to be applied on the children and then the innovation stops because of you know KPIs. Yeah. What, what are our indicators to see that our kids and our schools are performing? Do we want to risk being innovative? Yeah. And the risk stops. So I see the innovation primary school. What needs to happen is that some of the innovation needs to start taking place in secondary schools. Yeah. So yes, part of it is more balanced education on the racism issue, which you mentioned. Um, do we understand the fuller picture? But maybe the way that it's taught yeah. is also yeah. uh, an interesting point of view. And one final uh, point on that, again, if we look at what's been happening with uh, during the lockdown, I have two young children. I have uh, an eldest who's six and a half and the youngest who's four. I've had to work from home and homeschool. My kids have learnt more, I'm sorry to say, they've learnt more with me while I've still been working and homeschooling. They've, they've learnt more with me than they do at school because I've been able to give them attention. They've been able to combine technology with creative tasks and they're able to concentrate more without the distractions of the, the, the other kids in, in the class. Now, of course, it's important that kids are able to socialize with other children. That's an important part of, of kids' development. Yeah. But it's very clear that the enforced lockdown has, has made education, teachers, headmasters, etc., and even parents think what is possible. 
we've we've had to do things differently. Mm-hmm. It took a few weeks to work out how are we going to do Zoom calls and how are we going to use our laptops so the kids can still produce something, but we worked it out. And again, now how do we continue that enforced innovation into the future? And here is the challenge that that we should all look at yeah. uh, and and try and solve. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really, really well said. Uh, it's it, it's interesting in that I think those those almost sometimes those kind of business someone like yourself, you know, involved in the business world and innovation in the business world isn't necessarily sort of sought after to to be applied to the to the to the school sort of environment. And I think having spoken to a few on this on this podcast, actually having spoken to a few. Um, very successful businessmen and very very successful innovators is that they actually have some really really interesting ideas around you know how education can can improve and move forward. So I think it's really interesting that you know you were homeschooling your own kids and you probably learned a lot and thought a lot about you know how we could do things differently. But I've thought about it a lot myself, and the overriding feeling is that again it's that there's never been that opportunity to do things differently it's always just been well we've always done it this way as you said there's so much risk involved when it comes to your own children and if at the end of the day you can't blame people for like well i just want to go with what the safest option is i don't want to they're not guinea they're not guinea pigs at the end of the day and that's i think why in that um in that department change is so it's so difficult to get change to happen but yeah at the same time it's the most important place for it to happen because you know your secondary your 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 time during secondary school is probably your most formative period of your life um and if you know there's ways that of, of being taught during those years that are kind of you know 20 30 years old um that's creating a real issue in society um so yeah so that that i think is a, is a major i can't have a think like the secondary school um system is a, is a major you know area of, of that needs to be sort of put under the microscope um and actually you know and, and not sorry yeah go on. yeah here's what i also find uh, find interesting in terms of uh, of parallels Again, during Corona, the governments were looking at how the other countries were dealing with testing, lockdowns, restrictions. Um, so they were looking at other countries and they were also, we kept, we kept hearing it time and time again in the Netherlands and also in the UK and also uh, across the world, trust the experts, trust the, the, the experts, trust the data. Yeah. And what I find really interesting about this as a parallel example is that when you start to look either at other countries or other other industries for examples of how it could work, Mm -hmm. you may find something, you may find an example where you say, why don't we take it from this industry Mm -hmm. and why don't we pilot it? Yeah. So maybe, you know, when you even look at the word uh, guinea pig, guinea pig has a, can have a negative context sure. because it feels 
if tested on. Whereas if you have a pilot program, then it feels as if it's more of a leadership position. Yeah. And again, I think that if you start to look at how is education being done in, in other cities where kids are transitioning from primary school to secondary school, what's working yeah. and what is, the, what is the data telling us? And then what could we take, what tools could we take that we can apply to our situation? Modify it? Absolutely. I mean, nothing is or apples to apples to oranges to oranges. How can we modify it? And it makes sense mm-hmm. in, in our schools and our kids. And then let's pilot it. Because I think that once you start to see any proof of concept, any proof of concept, and you start to iterate along that, then this is where the innovation starts. I mean, if you look at it like, um, I mean, could education be like a startup? Exactly. And with startups, yes, you have a business plan, a loose business plan, but you certainly have a direction. Yeah. You have your mission, you have your vision, you have your strategic thrusts that are going to help to get you there. But you always keep open ears, open minds, open hearts. Yeah. So you can start to think to yourself, what am I learning along the way that I can modify? And what can the kids tell me about what they've been learning that can help to modify? Sometimes I think it is very much of a top-down approach, headmaster, teachers, then kids. But what about you invert it? It's what we do. Consumers, kids, parents, teachers, headmasters. What if you inverted the conversation so you understood more about what the kids do, how they use and combine technology with their work, yeah, and how can you use that to learn how to do things differently? Yeah, that's something that I've always um, I've wondered a little bit recently. Is is, or it's a kind of an observation of my own, is that a lot, you know, eighty percent, I'd say, of my peers at least, may, maybe not quite eighty percent, but a really high percentage are involved in some way within a business um, of some kind. You know, they're applying skills um, very much, you know, in a business setting. And I, and I feel like nowadays, even if, you know, even if you're an employee, having that kind of entrepreneurial business mindset is obviously super important to, to uh, getting a, a business to the next level. And, and, and then when you compare that to school, is almost this attitude of, you know, don't like business studies is a very small you know subject that that some people take. But there's almost this: don't think too much about business. Like this is education, separate from business. It's almost like a slight taboo. And like you know, you never get taught about you know personal finances and money and you know entrepreneurial you know how to be an entrepreneur or how to have an entrepreneurial mindset. And I feel like that kind of education is becoming more and more important. Um, and I think it relates to giving, you know, a bit more power to the individual. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, haven't, I haven't really fleshed out my thoughts around that, but I just feel like change and innovation in, in schools will factor that in, in, in some way. And it will be a, a smoother process to transitioning into a world that's, you know, it's a, it's a business 
world. Like everything that you do is is in a you know you're adding value to society, which is you know a, a business environment. And so I think for me, it would make so perfect sense that you're you're taught that quite early on in school, and that you know how society works is, is value exchange, and you've got to find out your best way to add the most value to society and hopefully enjoy it at the same time. So, I, I think that, I, I think that, you know, you, you're touching on something there, which is, you know, we are now talking about, or we can talk about your Gen Z's. Uh, and now we're, I'm not quite sure if they have framed the new generation coming through, but if we're at Z's, I'm sure that we're, back to A's again, so maybe we're talking about alphas, who are probably around currently about 8 to 12, 8 to 14, something like that. Yeah. These are kids who have seen their older brothers, cousins, go through the economic crisis, because we, we still ain't out at the end of, you know, the, the 2000 and eight and nine recession so we've seen so these kids have seen older brothers cousins even parents financially struggle mm -hmm. and also maybe have to drop out of education because financially they they were not able to sustain it these kids now have seen um their parents now financially struggling again due to corona and there, there is, if we're not in a recession now, it's coming. Yep. They've seen their, uh, their grandparents um, also probably struggling with lockdowns and, uh, and, and also maybe passing away. So we're now entering, for, for kids in education, we're entering a lot of fear, uncertainty, and dread. Yeah. But here's where I think is so interesting about this uh, both Gen Z's and Alphas is that yes, they may be fearful, but they are also very opportunistic mm -hmm. because they realize, you know, parents are not ATMs. They may treat us, they may treat us like ATMs, but parents are not ATMs. Yeah. So I don't know that some of the kids, young people that I've come across, I've done projects for literally for Nike kids in France, Germany, and uh, in the UK. So I was dealing with eight to 12 year olds, but then I've done other projects for, you know, Rihanna where I'm dealing with more 14 to 24 year olds. Mm -hmm. They are hustlers. Yeah. They are, and they're, they're doing it by themselves. It's not something that they've been, they're being um, overtly taught. Yeah. They are just realizing that in order to get to where I, where I want to go to or to have the things that I really want, they've got to hustle. They've yeah. got to find ways to get to those places, whether it is by earning money, whether it is by making networks. They realize that the system is not necessarily set up for them to achieve what they need to. So they're taking it more on board themselves. And again, when you look at everything that these, 
that young people are dealing with, or everybody's dealing with, but you know, if we're talking about youth in particular, they're dealing with a lot. Yeah. But they are, I think that they're managing to stay quite, op uh, you know, opportunistic and um, optimistic, but they also need help. Yeah. Um, and I think that the things that we're also trying to do at, at, at this Memento um, is help to mentor people. So I'll give you an example. Last year, um, and this may sound a little bit poncy, but I'm a member of Soho House in Amsterdam. Yeah. Um, and Soho House have a program where they are asking, you know, I think 24 young people who are not part of Soho House but are linked to people at Soho House. Yeah. But they need guidance. They needed guidance on if you want to make break into marketing or advertising, um, event production. How do you do it? So Soho House set up a mentorship program. I was one of the mentors uh, with another 24 other members. Uh, and we were helping these young creatives to create their plan, create their strategy, but also expand their net network. So we were helping their hustle. Yeah, yeah. We've now uh, moved into a building in Amsterdam Southeast, which is, um, you could argue, is the, 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 the black neighborhood of, and um, we're, you know, sort of collaborating with a concept called Prospect 11. It's a seven story building, um, and the entrepreneurs and the businesses in this building are all from the neighborhood. From, from the southeast um, and one of the reasons why the building is in place is to give them a space yeah. to be able to create so they're not just working around their you know kitchen tables but it also gives them an opportunity to network with other entrepreneurs from a very similar background yeah but also to come across other business people such as myself, 11 years in business, you know, even I pat myself on the back and say, well done, you've made it past three years and yeah. you're now on year 11. Yeah. You know, I'm able to pass on yeah. some of that knowledge, whether they want to hear it or not, that's up to them. Yeah. Um, but I'm able to pass on that knowledge yeah. uh, and be here if somebody wants to talk about setting up a, you know, budget sheet or a PL and l or, yeah. you know, how do I brand my yeah. you know my company so yeah. i think that it's important for uh for for people at a certain point to start to not think selfishly but mm -hmm. to think think and, and behave selflessly to give back it doesn't have to be a purpose of their business yeah. but i do feel that it needs to be a purpose of um their own self-worth yeah, yeah yeah you know i've i've been i mean harry i've been lucky enough i've been to i studied at kingston university i was the first one of my family in the uk to go to university super lucky awesome. yeah i came out during a recession i was broke so i ended up working at french connection on the shop floor yeah but i got a job yeah. i then ended up being picked up by diesel to do sales and marketing, never did it before, but did sales and marketing across the UK. 
but I managed, I was traveling to Italy, to the head office, I was traveling around the UK. I then got picked up uh, by Nike, um, yeah, nearly 20 years ago. And I, I traveled everywhere across Europe to Japan, to the factories in Asia, to the US. I've had a really blessed career. Now it's time for me to say, okay, let's give something back outside of the team. Yeah. But to give something back yeah. to, the, to the young people who are starting out. And I feel that this is really an important step for me. It's really cool. That's really cool to see that that's, um, that that's happening. And, you know, leaders like yourself are, you know, wanting to do that. And I think that, you know, maybe it's interesting. I just, what, what was going through my mind there when you were talking about you and offering support to those kids that would still be at school age and offering some support with their business like that, that's potentially much more useful education than, you know, what they'll learn in the, in the physics classroom or, you know, whatever classroom it may be. So it's just, do you think that is a trend that, that sort of, that these kids may start finding more support and almost, you know, real education outside of their school environment? We might even see, you know, more of these kind of like businesses offering education as well. Um, over over the time i th i think it could be a combination uh again if we if we take the the second pandemic the you know the anti-racism pandemic yeah. that that yeah nobody saw coming but actually in in actuality it's always been there we yeah. just chose not to address it and it just flares up every you know once in a while i think this this time it feels different yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. time it feels as if um, there is awareness, there is passion, and it feels like there is need. And I think that what it's what it's caused is the, especially the global brands, any yeah. brand actually, not just the global brands, even the local brands, is to start to self-reflect. Yeah. And once that self-reflection, they've gone through that process because there's a lot of companies that have been contacting us as well to say, hey, you know, how can you help us? Right. We, we never, we never um, dealt with this before. We don't have that many people of color in our organization. We need to change. Yeah. What I think is going to happen is that as the companies start to realize that they need more outreach. It means their HR departments and their diversity and inclusion departments also need to change, which means yeah. that they need to go to other places to find people of color to add diversity to their organization, yeah. which means where do they go? They need to go, they need to start to go to schools. Yeah, yeah. They need to understand. They need to go to universities. They need to go to colleges. They need to go to schools, um, because if the kids are coming through this system, and some of them from more disadvantaged backgrounds are dropping out, yeah. Then how do you incentivize these kids to stay in education? Is because you then show them the route. 
you can show them there's a role model who's a person of color who's running you know a very successful business a person of color who has uh, an advertising agency a person of color who's a vp in a huge organization yeah. once you start to reach down you start to inspire as the kids start to reach up yeah. so that that's why i think that it's a combination of the companies and the organizations starting to realize we need to to look for people in different places yeah and the education system saying we need to improve and balance out our education and we need to start to plug in and give our kids access to different opportunities combination of the two yeah i wanted to drill down a little bit on your i think i listened to a <laughs> An interview or something of yours and you would you would say you would talk drilling down on the diversity point and it's a it's become a massive buzzword right in these especially in companies like we need diverse perspectives and i think you said something along the lines of like it needs to extend just beyond you know oh let's get a black person on our board like it's more it's more than that it's not just ticking the boxes of you know getting a an ethnic minority you know, in board because that's almost perpetuating this same problem of sort of positive prejudice, right? So I wanted to to ask you about that and and the difference between just being diverse for the sake of it and actually sort of genuinely wanting, you know, a diverse set of, of individuals um adding to your company. And I think the, the point that the big the whole racism crisis has, has made me think quite a lot about um, that that topic in particular. But I don't know what your um, opinions would be, but I feel like it actually links. Obviously, the racism issue is probably the most important one and probably the most intense one and brings up the most sort of emotion and fear. But I feel it also relates to a lot of other like conformity issues. So we have you know, the, the, the pride movement and like, you know, um, that that has been a, a battle over many years that you know still hasn't been fully won there are still lots of you know insidious attitudes towards you know homosexuals um you know there's there's movements like the mental health movement um which is something that I, the male sort of mental health suicide movement which is something that i've probably been more able to experience myself and that i feel is linked because it comes from this sort of like ideal that we all need to conform to um that that we feel that we need to like play up to and be but actually there's not enough freedom of expression to be whatever it is that you kind of you know want to be and we all end up playing this game of conformity through school through university through our workplace and it's it's leading to this anti-diverse anti being being yourself sort of approach Whereas I think what the, the, the racism crisis has brought out is there's more of these conversations where people are going, people are just speaking the truth. People are being honest about what they've experienced and going, I'm sick of this bullshit. Like, I'm just going to be myself now. And I think that's happening in, from, you know, black people of colour, but also, you know, gay people, also people who, you know, don't want to be part of a lad culture or whatever it may be, that a culture that they've kind of just put up with because it's just the way it is and I think linking back to what I was going to ask you to start is that like that for me will be 
real diversity when we can get to a point where everyone within a workplace is being themselves but brought together under like one company direction um they're not just all you know they're conforming to the the company ethos so yeah it's interesting to hear your thoughts on the difference between you know just ticking boxes and true diversity and freedom of expression i think the 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 risk that we have right now is that dni teams and hr teams start to uh, and ceos start to knee jerk have knee jerk reactions which is we need to tick a box we need to increase our numbers and get from here to here um with uh with people of color black people black women uh, asian yeah. lgbt you know we need to do that and then what the the what happens then is that it it becomes a policy without understanding yeah without understanding of you know what's the context yeah i think the the institutions i deal with brands let's say brands the brands where it will truly be successful and embedded are the ones that do the research and listen to an experience of people of color if you don't understand where this person is coming from if you don't sit down talk to them listen to them look for the patterns and also acknowledge that there is the problem but take time to do it then the then you don't actually um enrich the change you just respond to the change yeah yeah and we need to enrich the change mm-hmm. with listening to experiences it's taken you know hundreds of years for us to get to this point it does need to move fast don't get me wrong there needs to be an accelerated movement people have had enough yeah but at the same time there needs to be some a slow process where we are all of us understanding the situation and the needs without that understanding then the policy will not be embedded the policy could be rejected uh, and the policy could be looked at from the outside from people of color as being tokenism yeah yeah so there needs to be you know there needs to be a slow process running well you can't run in parallel but then there needs to be a slow process and a fast process once we start to understand how do we get it into practice yeah. because people's patience people of color's patience is running out has run out yeah yeah I want to use Nike in this example because you know someone someone listening to this um you know not necessarily involved in you know brand communication or whatever that may be but you know everyone knows Nike and everyone would have seen for example that when the covid pandemic hit and then also when the um racism crisis hit Nike were one of the first you know companies to react with a big campaign getting all their athletes involved saying probably you know what looked like quite a scripted message for them to put out to their to their followers um 
so like a company like Nike, like how, how would you, and obviously you work with, with Nike, what does that look like from within? Are they a company that, you know, is, is, is ahead of the curve with this um, kind of um, problem? I don't, I don't know whether I, I saw me, whether it's, you know, true or not, I don't know, but, you know, people put pressure on Nike with like, you look at the board and it's all the, you know, the white old guys. And then you look at their campaigns and it's all the young, like, cool black guys and girls and it's like you know is is that is that something that i, I just yeah interested in your insight into you know, what happens internally at nike and are they are they trying hard to you know listen to all these perspectives and ha- how does that change look like over a period of i don't know five ten years yeah i mean working at nike having them still as the client, I mean, there's, there's one maxim that they, they've always had, which is um, listen to the athlete yeah. uh, and, and be a sponge, right? The two maxims actually that they have, which is pretty consistent ever since, uh, more or less ever since I started, they've always listened to the athlete. Yeah. Um, my experience has not quite being the same because all athletes are not credit equal <laughs> put it that way yeah when i was working for nike first of all i worked in the london team yeah now the team in london um you had nike town which was in oxford circus mm-hmm. and the nike hq was just opposite above benetton so it was literally they were looking at each other yeah when you go into the store at Nike, I mean, there's a load of cool black girls and black boys and people of color kind of running around being super cool. Yeah. Opposite, I think that there were maybe 30 people, uh, maybe 35. It was the marketing team. It wasn't Nike uh, yeah. UK. It yeah. was the marketing team who were based. Yeah. Three or four people of color there. So even in London, mm. one of the most racially diverse cultures in the world, yeah. it was not reflected within the company. When, yeah. I move, when I moved to EHQ, then I basically moved to Amsterdam, it was even worse, where the people of color that I was seeing were working in the mailroom. They were working in the, the Nike store in, uh, on, on the... Um, on the campus and there were, yes, there were more people, 1800 people, but the people in positions of influence were very few. And what I was getting was that people from the mailroom, from the store were coming to me to saying, how did you get there? And I was explaining, and here we come back to, I was telling them my story so they could understand what they may need to do. And then, of course, I went to, to the U.S. and to the global, um, and it was, yeah, proportionately, there were still, you know, very few people of color in positions of, of power. And what I find ironic, but also what I find helpful, is Nike do always listen to the athletes. <clears throat> they listen to research. They listen to how the market is changing. and Yes, I think that they are ahead of, ahead of the curve because of their behavior. Their mm-hmm. behavior is to listen, 
<clears throat> with what we've heard, excuse me, <clears throat> with what we've heard, what can we do to change? And we will do that change. They're committed to change. But still, they are, have been quite slow in actually putting in people of color into positions of power. Mm -hmm. I think that what they've done is that they have focused, as I think many companies have as well, they focus on the gender. Yeah. But they've ignored or left behind the color. Now the color is more at the forefront. Yeah. And maybe it is, you know, it's now like this. So uh, women was here, color was here. And now, right now, it's color is here. The, yeah. the gender issue is more here. So it's at the forefront. And I, and I feel that they are in a good position to do something about it. People are looking at them as, yeah. a, as a brand who has the main black athletes who, yeah. who look to connect to street culture and, and black culture, mm -hmm. that they have to do something. I feel that they will, but they need to speed their game up. Everybody needs to speed their game up, yeah. but I feel that they will. But my experience has been could do better, could do a lot better. Yeah. Interesting. And um, I was just, because you just touched on it there, I was interested in your experiences, you know, working at these um, Diesel, FC UK and, you know, getting to Nike and obviously you did do well and you got to positions of power. How was it for you? Like, did you feel like you you were playing a, a, a harder game than some of your, some of the people around you and your peers. And like, just give us an insight into someone, you know, of color at the time that you were working at those companies and how did those experiences that you get affect your, your route to, to working in a position of power? I mean, it's a hard, it was a hard game then, it's a hard game now. Yeah. Because the hard, the hard game then was when you start to look around you and you start to realize um, I am the only one. Yeah. Then it does, for me, it did two things. It, it, there was an added pressure in terms of performing. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that I felt that I was under more scrutiny than uh, white counterparts. So people were, I felt that I had to be mindful of uh, how I behaved mm -hmm. so that, that other people were not judged, other people of color were not judged by my behavior. Yeah. So I, had, I was very mindful of, of how I was uh, behaving. I don't think that I felt um, that I was ever racially abused in, in, in any way, in, yeah. in any of the organizations. Yeah, there are a few funny comments that I had about, you know, my style, my hair, you know, my tan lines. But, you know, when you're, when you're a person of color, you, you already grow a very thick skin from a very early age. Yeah. Because it's something, you know, again, as I mentioned before in my story of being 10 years old and being racially abused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had that when I was like 12, 15, 16. It goes through the, you, you build a thick skin. Yeah. And you so, become self-aware, so, right? 
you become very self-aware again you know how are people seeing me let's make sure that i'm you know i i, I represent um and also you you don't ignore the the racial stereotypes or people saying oh can i touch your hair or oh haven't you tanned well this year you know i used to get that that's you know all of the companies that that i worked uh for, for or with it was just for them it was like unconscious yeah 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 i really think it was unconscious i don't think that they were really trying to make me feel uncomfortable but here it comes back to without the understanding of how it did make me feel i sometimes i just suppressed like really you're going to ask me that question again um do you not know how this question comes across to a person of color without that education without the sharing of that story people just never knew and i didn't feel as if i was in a strong enough position to be able to say guys this is just not right yeah because i wasn't sure i wasn't sure if i'd have the backup yeah to be able to say hey this is not cool we're going to change it i just didn't know that that was going to happen and so you what just, you do you press yeah and you just feel like if you do speak up you'll just sabotage all your chances of progressing so it's just not worth the risk it's also a possibility and then you know you fast forward to you know the agency world and and setting up the company that i have now i'm also still very much in a in a minority mm-hmm. but when i come into you know meet with team leads or clients or uh you know key stakeholders within a project quite often in the room i'm the only person of color there may not even be a person on their team who is a person of color yeah. um sometimes and not even a diversity in gender so i'm already i feel sometimes as if my experiences have been just been trans, transferred from working within a company or companies yeah. and now it's been transferred to the agency world but still the, some of the core pillars exist which is i need to represent because now it's not just me representing my color but it's also me representing my organization and and my team um but here is where i think it's slightly different which is now i feel i have a stronger voice to bring in the diversity of perspectives because i'm already a diverse perspective in that initial meeting yeah when they say okay we're hiring you as a as an agency i'm already coming in with a different perspective not just because we're an agency supposed to come in with a different perspective but i'm already a different uh, perspective in terms of 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 color It means i'm looking at things in a different uh, light 100% really well said um yeah i just so in the in the final round of the of of these bouts we i asked you a few questions i just wanted to round off the 11th round just by asking you about <laughs> the, the the future of um this memento obviously being a having worked you know with you guys i absolutely love you know what you guys are doing and hearing you speak is is really inspiring um i also yeah it's worth mentioning that when we worked with you um i thought it was really cool that you gave us this book it's like a, it's what well, it's, it's a memento of 
you know the work that you do and it's the coolest book like just really well made um you know has re really cool insights into different people that you've interviewed and I, yeah just thought that was a really cool lasting memory so next volume you'll be in the next volume yeah hopefully i better be i better be um i'll ask we ask you for my free copy uh, so yeah just interested in uh, what you know what the future is for you where, what, what your vision is for this memento is it you want to grow it is it something you want to keep boutique like where, where do you want to go in the future i think that again um I, I can't talk about innovation without looking at how we can innovate yeah and the way that we like to work best is um face-to-face -face. you know the, the i think we had a, our initial conversation with you in the apartments that we were renting and then we came over to your place right to interview um yeah. you so and your mate yeah i wasn't there but it was a few other people oh, that, we, that we um yeah. in with some free nike shoes <laughs> yes exactly so that's the way that we that's the way that we have worked before face-to-face yeah. -face, very yeah. intimate um and and the title of the book is get under getting under the skin that's yeah that's the way that we work yeah with lockdown with um clients us and also consumers feeling very uncomfortable about people being in their personal space mm. and the social distancing yeah. it means that our intimacy and the way that we work yeah. has to change yeah. we have to innovate yeah. So what we, um, I think that there's a short and medium term change, mm -hmm. which is us also leveraging digital platforms, more um, digital and online tools, more Zoom calls, where actually our respondents probably feel even more comfortable in their own space and in, in their own homes, yeah. responding to us yeah. rather than being part of a focus group, for an example. So I think that we've had to evolve the tools that, that we're using. So we've also had to innovate and look at how we, we bring in um, digital into our research methodology. So I think that's definitely gonna increase more. I do think it will still go back to the intimate one-on-one, -on -one, but I think that there's gonna be increasing a blur and yeah. a, a combination of these things. Yeah. In terms of where I, where I see us, yeah, I think that I'd love to expand uh, the, the team here um, in Amsterdam. Um, I'm back and forth from Berlin a lot. Um, and so I, and, and I just love Berlin and I just love Germany. Um, so I'd love to have a, a satellite there. We used to have one, uh, it's it sort of, we decided to consolidate things in Amsterdam, but I'd love to be able to, to, to build one there. But also, focus both of the, the the offices if we have one in berlin as well on giving back so we'll still keep what we're doing we we don't want to grow into the you know into this huge agency i'd like to keep us a boutique because i think it keeps us it keeps us um personable personal it keeps us um interested genuinely interested in the people rather than just clocking up numbers and clocking up clients yeah. so i'd like to keep that that intimacy but i'd like to also look more about how
from with class through being on stage and actually sharing our experiences of who we've met and what change may be taking place with young people in mind. So I see us being, and me, probably me, being more on stage, sharing these experiences. Yeah. Awesome. I really like it. So as I said, we're he heading into the, uh, um, after 11 really, really enjoyable rounds. I mean, just absolutely flown, flown through them. Uh, heading into the final round now, I've got a few questions up my sleeve that I, I just want to throw at you because I'm quite interested okay. to hearing your, your answers for them. So, um, yeah, my first one is, um, what's something that you used to believe that you no longer believe? <laughs> okay, that's a good one. Um, I think I need to go back to when I first moved out of home. Yep. And um, my mum said to me, Jason, just remember, not everybody is going to like you. As a 19-year-old you know, kid going to university, of course, I was thinking, yeah, everybody is going to like me. It's, it's, a, it's your purpose of going to university is, yes, to be successful, but also to be popular. Yeah, yeah. And I really, I realized that trying to be popular means you compromise. Yeah, yeah. So my own belief that I need to be popular to be successful I no longer believe in. I believe that you need to be authentic, have a vision and stick to your path, irrespective of how it may make people feel. Mm -hmm. Be respectful of how you treat people, but stick to your path. If people are not on board, you don't need to be popular. You just need to stick to your vision and you will find the people or people will find you that will see your vision and that's how you go forward. Not about being popular, it's about being straightforward, honest, but stick to your vision. Awesome advice. That, that, I feel like that's advice that I need um, at the moment as well. So I think that's, that's, that's a really, really good one. Um, well said. The, the second question I have is, it, it, in five, how do you think society will be different on a, on a quite practical level in five years' time? Yeah, also a very tricky one. <laughs> I think I touched on it a little bit um, yeah, earlier. And I, and I think that change needs to accelerate because before we know it, it will be too late. So whether it be with climate crisis, whether it be the frustrations on, uh, on racism, I think that these are maybe two of the most important things that I would say, because who knows with Corona, maybe we'll find a vaccine, but here are two which I can see societally uh, need to change. I think that we will see people being more um, passionate, more outspoken, more demanding and i think that organizations and brands will adjust accordingly at least this is my biggest hope that yeah. they will adjust accordingly and put into place policies commitments that they will stick to and i think that people will hold or society will hold 
those companies, those institutions accountable, more accountable to those commitments. This is what I sincerely hope, but I believe will be the change. Love it. And yeah, definitely hope so as well. Well said. Um, (laughs) Exactly. So, and then my final question just to to round off the, the bout. Um, now that now that it's ended is uh, unlike in boxing where you walk to the ring and, and a song plays you in to fire you up um, in unboxing you actually just drop the mic and uh, and a tune plays you out so, so what what would be your your music track of choice and why yeah this one's really easy so I'm a big fan of hip-hop I used to uh, still do but I used to yeah. DJ a lot when I was in London and when I first moved to Amsterdam mm-hmm. my favorite artist is Most Def now known as Yassin Bey and yeah. he has a track on uh, one of his albums called uh, Umi Says okay. and Umi is originally a, an African word which yeah. means uh, servant it has African origins yeah. but I think in this case he means more mother or grandmother Right. Um, and it sort of goes like, Umi says, shine your light on the world, shine your light for the world to see. My Abi says, shine your light on the world, shine your light for the world to see. And it, those words, it. to me, say that each one of us has a song to sing. Yeah. Each one of us has a purpose to give. It's up to us to find what that purpose is and to sing our song so that everybody we come across personally, through business, through love, through career, whatever it may be, that everybody understands what you stand stand for. So you need to shine. The other things which come across in in that song is that it's about um, self-empowerment and Again, it's down to you to create your own path and create your own journey. So Umi says, most death, go find it. <laughs> Love it. What an answer. I think that deserves a little clap on the way out as well. But, um, awesome. Jason, it's been, it's been really, really fun to talk to you. Um, you know, I hope we, hope we cross paths in some way in the future again. Um, I'll definitely be following closely you know, what happens with this momentum. I think the work that you're doing is really important for... Um, all, all these companies and brands at the moment. So um, yeah, keep doing what you're doing. Thanks Thank so you. much for giving up your you know precious time um, when things must be really really busy. So um, yeah, thanks a lot. I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Thanks, Harry. No problem. Speak soon.
as always, thanks very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed this bout. And if you did enjoy it, please leave a review on Apple. See you next time.